Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Hey, Aaron. Good day to you both. How are you? I am jazzed up about this week's episode. Uh, someone I've wanted to have in the show for a long time. Uh, her name is Laura Shin. She is the host of the podcast Unchained, uh, which is about the cryptocurrency industry uh, and uh, hosts many major figures from within it. Uh, she also has a new book out called The Cryptopians, which is about the early days of Ethereum and this gigantic hack that uh, almost destroyed it. She was a reporter at Forbes, was doing this podcast, and then was sort of able to spin it out into her own business. And I was always curious about uh, how that worked. And so we got to talk about that and a lot more things, mostly about cryptocurrencies. If you don't like cryptocurrencies, you might not want to listen to this episode. But if you are interested in the topic, uh, there's going to be a lot to talk about in this. Well, Aaron, you yourself have covered crypto and are now a major figure within crypto. So I feel like you're, uh, you've are you got a lot of Venn diagrams here. This is a, a Venn diagram uh, heavy episode, um, but also a lot of stuff about reporting. Uh, I should say I had this book for a while, but had very like strict instructions not to share something that's revealed in the last chapter of the book. So we got to talk about like when your book has a like news breaking twist within it, uh, how you handle that uh, with regards to print galleys and things that are in circulation and you're trying to uh, keep uh, something from getting a uh, front run that is revealed in the book. So um, lots of interesting stuff like that in this. I'm going to say, even if you are not interested in cryptocurrency, you should listen to this episode. Thank you. Thank you, Evan. Our show is produced in partnership with the people at Vox. Thanks to them. And now here's Aaron with Laura Shin. Welcome uh, to the Long Form Podcast, Laura Shin. Thanks for having me. You wrote a book that uh, is like the catnip 
to the stack of books that I could potentially read uh, in preparation for this interview. People listening to the show probably know that I have something of a soft spot for uh, the cryptocurrency world. But um, <laughs> before we get into the cryptocurrency world, I realized that I started following you when you were already a uh, cryptocurrency journalist. And I have no idea what uh, you were doing before that. So um, what led you on that path? And what were you doing um, before you started focusing on that? Well, so I'd actually covered so many things as a journalist before, but like right before I was covering personal finance. And it's just an area, it's not like it changes a lot. So, you know, after I'd been covering it for like four years, I really felt, okay, I kind of know this material. And so if I'm going to write yet another article on retirement, it's going to be just like something I wrote before, but with different words, which is completely not interesting to me and not what I want to do. And I didn't feel like I was learning. So I got kind of antsy and I uh, mentioned this to my Forbes editors, but you know, just the way things are at publications, they were like, oh, we don't want Laura to go to a, you know, tech or something because we're going to lose the page views. And um, so they said, hey, well, we have this idea to do a Forbes FinTech 50 list. Why don't you head it up with another reporter? And so she and I just divided the list and I took the category of digital currencies and then became completely obsessed. And that was what started me on this road. And that was almost seven years ago now. Okay, so before those seven years, how did you how did you get into journalism, and what were your sort of early experiences like trying to break in? <laughs> it's so funny because probably my earliest experience was that, but basically, I won a journalism contest when I was in junior high, and I remember that not only did nobody in my grade expect me to win it, it was like the teachers had wanted to send another student, but then she like couldn't do it. So then they sent me and then I, I was one of the winners. But then also it was like ninth graders were included. And so the fact that as a younger student, I had also been one of the winners was kind of surprising. And then I just always did school newspaper and high school and college. And Basically, after that, my first job out of college was teaching ESL in Indonesia. But I think I just kind of knew I was going to do journalism because I applied for a Newsweek internship, but I didn't get it. I think it was something like the school year of the school where I was teaching didn't match up with the internship, but the woman was just like, just call me when you get to New York. And so I did. And then they gave me a job when I arrived. And that was how I got my start. What was the first point where you like felt like you could make a living doing what you were doing. I, I don't mean to insult uh, Forbes, but as I understand, like a lot of the like Forbes sort of content farm nowadays is like part-time or people like uh, sort of doing it on the periphery. What was your like f first full-time like engagement in journalism? Well, so the Newsweek gig. Um, so now I guess it was like 24 years ago. Um, and then I worked at the Wall Street Journal website briefly. And then I worked at the New York Times website briefly. All my full-time jobs are uh, not, I, I wasn't there very long because I kept quitting much to my parents' consternation. They were a little like, what are you doing? Like, why do you keep quitting these good jobs? Um, but yeah, I mean, so when I had the full-time jobs, obviously I was making money. Um, but I'm, I'm glad actually you raised the money issue right away. I'm happy to talk about this because in my 20s, I did freelance and did not know how to manage my own personal finances very well. And so ended up in a lot of debt, like five-figure debt. 
And actually what's interesting is that it was a friend who finally kind of made an intervention. It was just like, Laura, this is ridiculous. And the timing of that was actually really good because I had gotten a part-time job at the Los Angeles Times. And that kind of just helped my freelance work where I like finally had a regular income, even if it was part-time. And then I could supplement it with my one-offs that I was pitching. And then I managed to pay down a big chunk of that debt. And then, uh, you know, nasty little secret that I've been carrying is my parents then just finished it off because they realized like, okay, Laura, she paid off most of it. Like, we'll just get her out of her misery a little bit faster. Um, And then I went back to journalism school because basically I just realized, well, I don't have any expertise. And I thought climate change is going to be something with us until I die. And so I'll just cover that. Like, you know, people will be interested in that. However, I graduated in 2008, and no, at that point, people were not going to pay you to write about the environment. (laughs) Uh, That was the year, one of the statistics I saw was the journalism industry shrank 20-some percent, like 22%, or I forget. So almost no, like it was very, very hard to get a job out of, like, if you even look on the Columbia Journalism School website, for my year, the percentage of graduates who got a job was like in the 60s, and then all the other years, it's like 80, 90%. Um, so then I had to do other work for a little while and then it wasn't until 2011 I got back into journalism. But for your other question about money, so I then started covering personal finance and when I quit the second time, I was absolutely terrified. I actually was just like sobbing, you know, thinking, oh my God, the second I tell my parents that I am going to freelance again. My mother's going to have a heart attack and she's going to die and it's going to be my responsibility. And like, I will have killed her. And I was just working myself into a tizzy. And yet at the same time, I had to do it. So when I quit this other full-time job I had and I decided I was going to freelance again, I got the gig for Forbes. And frankly, actually, I mean, you know, there there were some freelancers that were making six figures from that, and I was one of them. Actually, I was just generating like a ton of page views, and since we were paid on page views, I just was making, you know, six figures, and it wasn't even my full-time thing. I was doing other freelancing. So I actually didn't have an issue money-wise from the get-go, which was great. And then, yeah, that's I, – I stayed doing that until, yeah, finally I went full-time with them in 2017, but that was really only because I'd been begging them to let me cover only Bitcoin and crypto – for a while, but it just was never big enough. They had no incentive to do it until 2017. Finally, I was getting these other full-time offers and suddenly it was actually becoming popular. And so then they brought me on full-time. But then during the course of that, I suddenly realized like, oh, my podcast is so popular. Actually, it wasn't even me. It was somebody working for me. She said to me, hey, I've done all this research on all the crypto podcasts. Like this is how much you could be making. And I had no idea. And I was like, oh, that's more than I make in my full-time job. (laughs) And then I was like, okay, well, I've always had this idea to write a book. So I will do the podcast, you know, two days a week or whatever, and then I'll use the other time to work on a book. And that's what I've been doing the last four years. And then my book came out last week. That was a a very solid summary. But now now I want to go slightly back to when you first started getting into crypto. When you say that you like got obsessed with it, what what was it that interested you and you know especially at sort of such a nascent point in the cryptocurrency industry like 
did you even see it as like a viable focus for like a full-time journalist's energy? I did. I mean, honestly, the the first source that really explained this to me in a really comprehensive way just helped me understand this is going to change the world. And I think I understood that in that first interview. I mean, he explained Bitcoin to me very in depth. You know, also keep in mind, I was reporting the FinTech 50 list, right? So I I knew what all the problems were with the banking system. Like all the FinTechs were telling me all the problems that they were trying to solve in the banking system. So I was extremely well acquainted with what the failings were of our traditional financial system. I knew that it was decades old. And, you know, I kind of understood that having truly digital money is completely different from logging into your Chase account and thinking that you're moving money digitally because that is not what's going on in the back end. So because I sort of was seeing through my other reporting kind of like how everything works now and really understanding, whoa, this is not a good system. And then kind of, you know, getting this education on what Bitcoin is, I understood right away, like, wow, this is going to change the world, like literally from that first interview, you know, whether or not I saw it as something that I could cover full time. I know I just had the desire to do that pretty much. I I don't know if it was literally from that first interview, but probably within six months or something, because I remember, I think Forbes said, hey, you know, we'd love to bring you on full time. And I said, okay, if you're going to bring me in full time, then I only want to cover Bitcoin. And they were like, okay, forget it. What was it like during those years? Like most of the journalism that I encountered uh, about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency uh, could be summarized as like, it's stupid, it's bad, it's going to zero, it's a Ponzi scheme. And simultaneously, you're kind of dedicating your life and and career um, to covering this. How did you deal with that disconnect from most of the other journalists who who were covering the topic? You know, I don't even know. I guess I wasn't paying attention to it too much or I didn't I didn't care too much because you know because you're in the crypto world, but for long form listeners, everybody in crypto talks about that moment where they fall down the rabbit hole. And that's really what my experience was. I just kept wanting to learn and I and I knew, I mean, you know, I I lived through the internet revolution in my lifetime. And when I was in my, so here's the funny thing, you know, I started at newsweek.com, at wsj.com, at nytimes.com. And each of those times early on back in the late nineties, early two thousands, I felt like I was at the uncool version of those publications. And then within the decade or, or short, you know, I don't know if it was literally a decade, but you know, not a long time later, Newsweek was sold for $1. I mean, that was such a profound lesson to me. You know, I joined in 1998 when Newsweek was riding high on its Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton scoops, and it was kind of like the hot place to be. And then to see that brand fall so quickly, like I kind of, you know, having witnessed that in the media industry, I sort of, I think, understood it. this could happen so quickly as well in crypto. So I think that's another reason why I just really didn't pay attention too much because I, I just was like, it's just going to be a matter of time. Like people are dedicating time and resources and money to this. They're going to figure out the problems. So you've been running a podcast for uh, how, how many years has your podcast been up? Um, it'll be six years in June. And I think you publish twice a week. So that's quite a lot of podcasts now, but originally it was only once every two weeks, but now, yeah, twice a week. Well, you know, that requires kind of a different, uh, hat than, let's say publishing like long form magazine features, you are 
every week, regardless of what the news cycle is required to publish a show, book an interview. What kind of a perspective do you think you get from doing that? And for people who haven't listened, tell us the the name of the show. So it's Unchained. And the tagline is, you're no hype resource for all things crypto. And they're basically just two interview shows. One is kind of feature-oriented. That's on Tuesdays, and it lasts roughly an hour. And usually it's either just diving in deep with a guest on their project, or I will take a topic, and it will be two people who maybe kind of slightly disagree or just have different viewpoints, and then they can discuss and debate. And then the Friday show tends to be based on the news that week, and it's a 20-minute interview. And then at the end, I just sort of read what we call the weekly news recap, where I just take the top headlines and give just a short summary because a lot of there's a good chunk of my listeners that are kind of like in tech but not in crypto or like in finance but not in crypto and so they're not keeping up to you know the minute on everything on crypto twitter but they definitely want to know what the top line news is of the week so those are the two shows yeah i mean that you actually got uh, into what i wanted to sort of ask about the shows which is how you sort of zeroed in on the right format for them. Like, I think there's a lot of people who are interested in a topic and maybe want to do a podcast about it, but how did you, uh, how did you craft that product around the listening needs of the audience? And and what did you learn along the way about turning something you're passionate about into a podcast business? So some of it is just natural instinct you know, it started as the long form interview show, the hour long. And, you know, crypto moves so fast. And for many of those hour long interviews, I was recording them like two weeks in advance or one week in advance or whatever. And they would almost be outdated by the time they came out. And I had this feeling that, I mean, it's not even a feeling. I could just see there's room in the market to kind of do more news oriented things. But I, you know, I just knew with kind of everything that I was doing, because I also write articles and, you know, there's everything. So I, I wasn't going to do just like a news show where it's coming out every day. Cause I'm sure, you know, Nathaniel Whittemore, who does, he does a daily news show and he hits the major news story every single day, but the podcast comes out every single day. I think he just spends all his time on that. And I have too many other things going on to only do the podcast in that fashion. But I knew I could still do that. I could just take kind of the top crypto story of the week and just do a quick 20-minute interview on that. And then through my survey, people were saying that they felt that I could even do more on the news. And that was how the weekly recap came about. And I actually, in the next survey, I asked, does this satisfy your needs? And everybody said, yes, this is what we were looking for. So I actually even just asked my listeners. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. 
The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. (laughs) I hate it so freaking much. Hey, you're a real runner now! I hate it. (laughs) I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. So the book covers, like, primarily or loosely um, the hack of the Dow and then the uh, ICO craze, um, which um, loosely runs, let's say like 2016 to 2018. Very recent events. Like literally I was reading some of your book and I was like, oh, I remember that day. Like I I remember (laughs) where I was sitting when that happened. And many of the people in the book are still very active, still work with each other, still working on projects. What was it like trying to get sources to talk about sort of uh, sensitive issues that were not that far in the past and maybe still had repercussions for the present? Honestly, it depended a little bit on the personality. Um, Some people were quite open from the start and then others took a lot of work. Certainly, there were some really sensitive things that it took a while to get out of people, but because there's so many conflicts in the book, there, you know, generally there, there might be like one side where they were like, oh, this happened. And so then I would kind of know what to look for. And then, um, you may remember in the middle of the book, there's a call and something very kind of shocking is suggested. And so many people described this phone call to me and they were trying to give me the exact words that were used because they were just absolutely shocked. And so many people said to me, oh, well, this is how it started. And these were the words that were used. And But to kind of say, okay, this person sort of kind of proposed something kind of illegal-ish and then should try to put words in their mouth but not have a recording, I was like, oh, like this is kind of dicey. So then when I got the – I, you know, when I realized there was a recording – I really worked the person who had that recording, but the pandemic had started and they were like, look, we're going to, we'll do the handoff in person. You know, we'll meet in person. I'll hand this off to you. And I was like, look, you're in that country and I'm in this country and we cannot visit each other. (laughs) So I was like, 
you can you can send it to my encrypted email. And, you know, and, and the funny thing is I, I don't know if they're the person who made the recording because I don't, this email address that sent it to me, I literally have no idea whose email address it was. But yeah, so finally that was how I got that. It was like this bloodless handoff. <laughs> when you hit a point in your reporting where you have two people who were there in the room and someone said, this happened and someone else said this happened and uh spoiler alert this doesn't just happen once in the book it happens multiple times how did you deal with sort of um factual disagreements uh in writing the book so there's one incident where someone proposes something to someone else and it's sort of like a shakedown well actually there were three people there i forgot about that but the accusation made against you know the person who was doing the shakedown that person already had a reputation of like doing similar things with many other people. So it kind of made sense that I was going to believe the person saying like, look, this is what this person was trying to do to me. And then later in the text, I bolstered it with these other examples of them acting in a similar way. In some of the other scenes where there's, you know, the eight co-founders plus 10 other Ethereum people or, you know, whatever, I would try to go around and ask everybody, oh, do you remember so-and-so saying such and such? And there were, interestingly, so there was another book. Well, there's two other books that came out about Ethereum. And in one of them, they said, oh, at this meeting, this guy Alex said da-da-da. But when I read that, I was like, no, you got it wrong. Because I, I know exactly which two sources said to him, this person, Alex, said that. I checked with Alex. He was like, I wasn't even there. I was moving across the country that day. I can show you my calendar. He was like, I was not even in Switzerland. <laughs> so, um, so I, you know, I could like check things, but it, that took so much reporting. Oh my God. I mean, can you imagine? Like somebody says, okay, during this meeting, so-and-so said blah, blah, blah. And then going around to the other seven people and being like, do you remember, you know? So yeah, it, I mean, it was hard, but my fact checker and I got to the point where we, we really did feel comfortable about everything. You know, I mean, there's clearly so much in the book that a lot of people wouldn't want known or wouldn't want to be said about them that we managed to put in the book. And we felt comfortable doing it because we really had a lot of good backup. And you'll notice, you know, whenever we only had something from one source, we would say that. Or, um, you know, there's just so many ways we kind of like phrase things a certain way just to be sure that we could feel comfortable and stand behind everything was, that was in the book. Uh, this book is about a hack of uh, what was a lot of money at the time and based on the appreciation of Ethereum is now a huge amount of money. I guess it's uh, Ethereum classic, so it's not as huge an amount of m money now, but it's a lot of money. Right, right. So in Ethereum classic, I think it, in the article we used $100 million because you know he originally stole Ether. If you do the Ether amount it was like 11 billion. That was the number that we used. But um, I, the prices weren't the same as like the actual day. Because when we were writing and editing, it was like they were trading around a different thing. So we just did round numbers for all of them. And um, But on the actual day, it ended up being different. But we could, because I had to record the podcast and just all these things. So we couldn't like do up to the minute numbers. But anyway. So the book is largely about this heist. And at the end of the book, you reveal a very, very, very strong suspect for the person who pulled off this heist, uh, who is a real person who is 
known in cryptocurrency. I even found when I looked that I was following him on Twitter. Um, so <laughs> that's how much the call was coming from inside the building. So there's a few things I want to uh, uh, talk about about this. But the first one I'm curious about is at what point in the process of making the book, did you know that you would be able to reveal the uh, hacker at the end of the book? Oh my God, not until the very end. I mean, this this was a true Rube Goldbergian like comment out of nowhere that happened. So what happened was at the time of the attack, there was an investigation. And so for most of the reporting on this book, I was following the leads on that. So basically when you turn in a book at the end, you do what are called three passes, which are kind of the last copy editing, proofreading, whatever. And you pass it back and forth between you and the publisher. So after the first pass, I had it back. And what happened was one of my sources who had been involved in trying to rescue the rest of the money reached out to me and said, and he's Brazilian, and he said, the Brazilian federal police had opened an investigation into the Dow five years ago. And so by the way, for listeners, we keep saying Dow, which stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization, DAO. And this had been initially structured as a decentralized venture fund. And then it got hacked. And so they kind of like did a funny, crazy thing to Ethereum to basically be like, the history of this is going to be erased and we're just going to act like it never happened. But when they did that, they accidentally created like a second competing Ethereum because some people were really mad that they were doing this. And so on the original Ethereum classic chain, they call it, the hack still exists. And that's why that hacker still has that money. And that's why those coins are called Ethereum classic coins, not Ethereum, because the Ethereum is the new one where they erased what happened with the DAO. So back to my Brazilian source, he was like, I'm going to commission a report to help exonerate me with the Brazilian police. But these reports are kind of expensive. And he thought, oh, maybe Laura could use this information because she's working on her book. And so he got a discount on his report in exchange for some credit in my book. And after we got the report, we kind of were analyzing it all different ways. And one way was to check like what times was this hacker cashing out, meaning converting the money from Ethereum Classic to Bitcoin. Because Ethereum Classic was a brand new coin. It wasn't liquid. And Bitcoin is, is very liquid. It's the most liquid cryptocurrency and still is today. And so it's much more usable. It's much easier to kind of turn into actual money. And we noticed, okay, these cash out times tend to fall into kind of an Asian morning to nighttime schedule. And I had a clue from when they were preparing the attack, they had sent a customer service email to this one exchange. And I could see in the language, it was a fluent English speaker. So I was like, oh, Asian cash out times, but I know I can tell from this message that this is a fluent English speaker. And so I faced this moment where I wanted to ask my publisher for extra time to keep going over the report that I had gotten with this Brazilian source. His name was Alex. And, you know, we, we'd already delayed the book one time, by the way, because, you know, there were like supply chain issues and just like the legal review and just, there were so many things along the way that just took a little bit of extra time. And so then there was a moment where we were like, hmm, it might be nice if we just had a little bit extra time. So we'd already pushed it once. And here I was, I have this new information. I want to like keep going with it. Right. And my fact checker and I were like, gosh, we have to turn in the second pass right now. And so I asked for the extra time and, you know, surprise, surprise, they didn't say yes. Um, however, I did pass uh, my findings and some 
clues that uh, I wanted to follow to another company I'd been working with called Chainalysis. And I was hounding them. And I, I really was like, oh my God, these people hate me. I'm harassing them relentless, relentlessly. I've already been hounding them for years. They've already given me so much help with the book. And I kept being like, have you had a chance to look at the, the data? And yeah, finally they come back to me and they're like, um, we need to have a phone call. And I was like, oh my God, I just knew it, right? I just knew it. And so we had the call. And um, they they had been able to do one key piece of it, which was like very important. And I can't talk too much about the rest of like what exactly happened when, but I will say that um, there was a moment when I just realized, okay, this evidence is so good. I feel so confident about it. And so I finally did go to the publisher and they agreed, okay, this is a good problem to have. And they were willing to work with me and it wasn't, you know, a tense thing where I kind of was like nervous, you know, as I'd been before. And so we agreed to delay the book one more time. Um, but what was fascinating was because I'd already spent X number of words on presenting the evidence of the previous suspects, and because the book was so close to its final stages, they said, you have to present this in the same number of words. We, we don't have extra room because if you add extra pages, it does things like it affects you know, the size of the book jacket. And we cannot make more changes than that because already we're going to have to change the index. And we're, you know, there were all these, there's just like so many downstream effects when you do that. So yeah, I, that's why, you know, the article has so much more information just because there were too many constraints at that moment because it really was like the last, last minute. Um, so that's how all that went down, but it was like, it was pretty nutty. <laughs> so from the period you knew this was going in the book and was literally getting printed uh, in some factory somewhere um, to when the book, or I guess really the article that named the hacker came out. Um, how did you think about keeping that secret? And um, the fact that there was, you know, a, a lot of people who'd be pretty interested in this information uh, floating out there who could potentially front run you. I mean, we were nervous for sure, but you know, as you know, in the epilogue, we don't actually give the name. Right. And so it was determined that like book publishers aren't well equipped to deal with this kind of news. And so they said, we think it's better if you just release this in a news outlet. You can put in the book all the basic outlines, but it should be anonymized. And then that kind of also helped us keep the secret longer. Um, and yeah, I but we were worried. But the funny thing is that then when I went to pitch it to different news outlets, Interestingly, more than once people said, well, what if it's like when Newsweek, you know, tried to uh, pinpoint Doria Nakamoto, a Satoshi Nakamoto, which for people who don't know this story, um, that later became kind of debunked and Newsweek sort of had egg on its face from that. I think multiple people have actually gotten the Satoshi egg on their face. There's a there's <laughs> right. at least three journalists who are no no longer want to ever cover anything related to Satoshi. It's an easy way to to be wrong. Exactly, exactly. But a lot of them were concerned about that, and you know, it was this weird thing where I couldn't, since I hadn't sold the story to them, I didn't want to tell them too much, and I couldn't explain why my evidence was so good. But I knew it was, and I knew what the difference was between those two stories and what my evidence was versus, you know, for Doria Nakamoto. So um, in the end, in a way, what was good is that, you know, I ended up back with Forbes and 
I think that was that ended up being such a blessing because it was my old editors, and they understand blockchain and crypto. And what they did was they did a fact check first before because you know I had a version already ready to go, and they did the fact check first before they even kind of edited it for how they would want it in the in, on the website. And then they, yeah, they very quickly satisfied themselves. Like, yes, the evidence is extremely strong. And you've noticed ever since it came out, nobody's been like, you're wrong. <laughs> you know, there's been no, it's been completely, everybody seems, you know, people were tweeting at me like that I was the goat, like multiple people tweeted that at me, which was so nice, which is like, just for journalists who are listening to this, if you don't know the crypto world, to have them say anything nice to a journalist is kind of just jaw droppingly crazy because they are not. Uh, people who generally give kudos to journalists. Um, but yeah, it, you know, I really, I did feel the evidence was strong. And, um, you know, it wasn't even just that I had kind of the the pieces right at the, the last bit that would give the name and stuff. But also when I went back to what he was doing at the time of the hack and, and all that, then it really made sense because he was so focused on the DAO and he'd already identified all these problems with the DAO and was like trying to contact the creators about it. And like, you know, just like he was, he just was so into it. And then after the, the attack, he was kind of trolling and like posting these derisive things against people that were trying to erase the hack, which is what ultimately Ethereum did. And so just everything fit together then, even, you know, even when I went back in time. And so I, I felt very confident in it. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm interested in something you actually just touched on a second ago, which is the relationship between crypto and journalism. And conversely, the relationship between journalists and the crypto world. Um, it's not a particularly friendly uh, relationship. Um, so, you know, there's this kind of belief within uh, crypto that generally journalists should be avoided and sharing things with journalists is, is not the way to go. And then there's this sort of parallel belief um, I, I, I've perceived from people in the journalism industry that no one can cover crypto if they've ever participated in crypto. So um, there's a real discouragement of people who've uh, held coins from covering uh, the uh, industry or really people who are sort of any way involved. 
what do you make of the fact that someone who uh, invests in crypto cannot cover it? And, and how have you navigated those issues throughout your career? So before I answer the second part, I want to just like push back a little bit on... Please do. So it is true. And I, and I am the one also who said that generally crypto people don't give compliments to journalists. However, what I will say is that I feel that this narrative around how crypto people and journalists like aren't friendly... The truth is, actually, I have really good relationships with most of my sources. We are friendly, and I respect them, and they respect me. And certainly there are people who, uh, yeah, they don't like me, and maybe I would have a hard time getting them on my show or whatever. But generally, by and large, my personal experience is that on an everyday basis, it's positive. It's Let me just thing. push back about one idea there, though. I think that you cover crypto sort of from within the crypto industry and have have those people on your show. You might get a different response if you called and said, hey, I'm writing for this or that magazine. I have no track record in crypto at all. I want to talk to you about it. Like you're a known figure within crypto who sort of has your own reputation built in. Yeah. Yeah. And 2015, when I started, is a different time because at that time, people were still friendly and open. But you're right. At that time, this um, rhetoric or with the hostility didn't exist. You know, I think, I think, frankly, part of it is that the paradigms in crypto really change everything. You know, this concept around decentralization, so many people don't get it. And so it's true that a lot of journalists, they mess up when they write about crypto because they will call, they'll say things like, and, and I'm making up these examples, but you know, that like Ethereum is a startup or they don't, they don't kind of understand what it, it's just such a new thing in history, frankly. So it's not surprising to me that a lot of journalists make mistakes in the beginning and crypto people, yeah, they can be a little bit intolerant and um, they're, they're like very quick to point out flaws. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're, they're know-it-alls. That's what I really mean to say. But, you know, frankly, like journalists that, you know, when you, it's like that with any beat that you start and you don't really know a lot. And maybe people on the inside think that you sound like an idiot, but you sort of figure it out after a while or you don't, and you cover something else. And then in terms of the, issues about like whether or not you can cover this if you own it or don't own it. I have at times owned Bitcoin and Ethereum because when I worked at Forbes, the policy was if you disclose, you can cover what you own. And, you know, it's it's just different from like some of the other news outlets. And then when I wrote my first freelance articles after Forbes, one of them, they were for the New York Times, which of course wouldn't let you do that. So I I actually either sold or gave away my Bitcoins and Ether. And I just never looked back because I was like, oh, well, if I want to write for a number of these other big publications, they're not going to let me own. And, you know, writing is so much more important to me than than owning Bitcoin. Yeah, I love them, but I can love them in this intellectual way. And so that's fine for me. But I personally don't feel that if you're going to cover these that you can't own them. That's just my personal opinion because obviously I have in the past covered them and owned them. You know, would I say that maybe there is like an amount that it should be capped at? Like like maybe you can only put in 1% of your net worth or something or, you know, whatever because uh, I, I obviously if it's some crazy, crazy percentage of your net worth then maybe it's not a good idea. 
but also at the same time, now the space is so big that no one journalist is ever going to write a story that's ever going to like move the market in their favor. Like the idea that that's going to happen is kind of weird in my opinion. So um, that's another reason why I'm a little bit like, oh, I, I personally think the disclosure idea is totally fine and workable. Well, I think that that idea has evolved a little bit now as um, an increasing number of journalists are covering um, what uh, has come to be known as Web3, um, where originally, like in the early years that you were covering, um, the question was, can you hold this or not? Like, is it okay to have this investment? And as cryptocurrency uh, sort of shifts into this Web3 gear, it becomes more experiential and like, you know, have you done these things? And it becomes stranger and stranger to expect someone to cover the Web3 industry uh, without in any way interacting with Web3. It would be somewhat akin to covering the early world of the internet if you had never been on the internet. So um, what do you think about that as it sort of jumps out of the investment uh, category into whatever it's becoming? Well, I think in that case, a lot of those publications would say, well, you can use company money to do that. And then for any proceeds, we would donate that or, or, you know, the company would keep the money or whatever. In my case where I own my company, obviously, um, maybe people would have an issue. But I at the moment, my company actually does own Ether and Solana because I'm going to do NFTs for my book. And well, actually, the original reason I bought the Ether was for my Ethereum domain names. So I have like laurashin.eth and unchained.eth and whatever, and I had to buy those. Um, you know, I, I get so many imposters and they try to scam people out of money. Like literally on Facebook, some somebody messaged me and they were like, oh, I responded to your offer and I sent, you know, 0.1 ETH or whatever, 0.1 BTC or I forget what it was. And I was like, oh shit, like they got taken in by a scammer. It was terrible. And because I get these imposters on on every platform, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, I mean, like everywhere. Um, but the point is, yes. Yeah, so I bought Ether at that time, and then I think like I have I have some leftover, so I can do these NFTs. But yeah, as a in court in the course of my business, I actually do need to interact in order to like protect my, you know, my business or whatever. Or in the case of the NFTs, like you know, as a creator now in the Web three space, yes, of course, I'm going to offer things for people who follow me. So, but you know, those are like business expenses. I'm not like trying to make money from when I bought the ether or anything like that. So your business is basically your podcast company. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, I guess I do all like even the Forbes article now, you know, they paid it to that company or the, uh, uh, the book proceeds go to that company. Just, yeah. So I do everything through that. Tell me about building that as a business and, um, how it feels different than it might have when you were sort of a freelance lone wolf journalist. So, you know, I was a freelancer with Forbes for the first four years, I guess. Uh, and during that time is when they started their podcasts. And I saw that and I said to my editor, hey, I want one. <laughs> and so they had originally planned a launch with 12, but I became the 13th. And I think mine is the only one that still exists. Lucky number 13. And because I was a freelancer, so so people might know, okay, so for the Forbes contributor model, they do not hire you for one-off freelance articles. 
which means that they don't they don't do a, what's called a work for hire contract. Which so for people who I mean I'm sure most people know on the show, but I'll just spell it out. So a work for hire contract is the most typical kind of freelance contract you get for an article, where the company commissioning that from you will own the copyright and everything, and you are just doing the work for them, and they'll own it, and they'll just pay you a fee for your work, and that's kind of the end of that. Even even your notes, they'll own your notes. So like if you do some interviews and you think that you can use some of the material for another article, you, you cannot do that. So Forbes had a different model because they have this contributor network. And so what they do is they do not vet you for individual stories. What they'll do is they'll vet you as an overall writer and then you own the copyright in all of your articles. And that means, at least when I started, I don't know what it is now, but they would request five days exclusivity world, worldwide, I think. And then after the five days, you can resell your articles. And I used to do that. I actually used to resell on a website called FeatureWell in case people are interested in using that. And you know, I only made a few extra thousand a year on it or whatever, but still it was nice. So with the podcast, when they sent me my contract for it, because I was a freelancer, again, it was a contract that gave me the copyright over the podcast, meaning they don't even take liability. Like I have to, you know, check it for legal stuff and, and all that. But still, I owned the podcast from the outset. And this is kind of what has enabled me to do what I've done now. Because so I started that. So I started the podcast in 2016, in the summer of 2016. And Forbes decided they didn't want to continue it at the end of the first season. And I was loving doing it. So I desperately, desperately was seeking a sponsor. And this was a different time in crypto. In 2016, nobody cared. And so I was like begging all these companies to try to sponsor my show. Nobody wanted to do it. And then finally, I found there was this marketing firm where they were doing websites for a lot of crypto companies. And they were like, oh, like we can, you know, tap this new audience. So the owner bought a full year's worth of sponsorship on my show. And she basically got the steal of a lifetime because the year that she bought the sponsorships for was 2017, which is the year that crypto just took off like crazy. And so by the end of the year, I had bananas downloads. But during that year, 2017 is when I got hired full-time at Forbes. And I, when I initially signed on with them, I said, oh, by the way, you know, when my sponsorship, because uh, I, I sold this exclusive sponsorship for the year, but when that runs out, you guys can run ads on it. I don't care. And then what ended up happening was that we never worked out what the deal was going to be, uh, like officially. It was just this spoken verbal thing, but we never put anything in writing. And so what happened was in January, I didn't have anything. So I said to the marketing firm, you can buy additional ads um, while I'm still waiting to work out my deal with Forbes. So she did. And then my this person who was helping me you, you know, messaged me and was like, by the way, I've been doing research into ads on the shows. And like, with your downloads, like you have way more than anybody else. Like you, you could charge this much. And I was like, what? Like that is way more than I'm making at my full-time job that I spent like seven days a week on. And so, yeah, so that's when I quit Forbes. But if I didn't own the copyright and the trademark, like from the get-go, it would have been a very different story. And so I just want to, you know, kind of give advice to anybody who's listening to this. If you are going to create something, you should own that intellectual property in that. Because I do know other journalists who have created great brands and shows with other publications and the publications owned them from the outright. And they had to walk away. They, 
you know, they didn't own these hugely successful things. And so it's just, it, yeah, once you own it, like it helps you tremendously. And so I really would give that piece of advice to people. I mean, I just got lucky in that regard because I didn't even have my lawyer look at it. So the other piece of advice I would have you all do is have your lawyer check over every single contract. <laughs> I do that now, but obviously at the time I didn't know what I was doing. And, but anyway, yeah, that, that ended up being such a godsend for me. Is there anything we didn't get a chance to talk about that you wanted to talk about on the show? Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, this goes back to, so for people who want to work for themselves, I have this theory about kind of like how to succeed financially if you want to work for yourself. And I call it the three-layer cake. Because I realized later what my first, what my mistake was that first time around that I tried to freelance and I didn't succeed was that I didn't have a regular source of income, just any one kind of part-time job that just had some base level of income that I could rely on every month. And actually, that's not true because when I first started, I did, but then 9-11 happened like three months later and then a bunch of those gigs went away like immediately. So so that's not actually true. I did start with that, but then when they went away, like I didn't get anything regular for a long time. But anyway, um, so that's your first layer. It's like the foundation. It just like gives you something to kind of be able to make your budget on and like, you know, cover your rent and your whatever with. It's just sort of that base thing you can count on. You don't have to worry about it too much. And then what I call the second layer is kind of, you know, the things that you really want to do, like things that are getting you to your dream scenario, which is the third layer. And those things could either be a lot of money for a little bit of work. Like I used to do some corporate things where I would make it like a game. I would charge them a lot of money. I would I would be like, you know, you're going to pay me whatever, some huge amount of money for this article. And then I would time myself and I'd be like, awesome, I made $750 an hour. And I'd be like, great, you know, done. I'm sending that in. Like, and I would just would, you know, try to try to make as much money as I could in as short of a time. Or so the second layer can mean multiple things because it could also be that you want to do more long form stuff, but nobody's hiring you to do it. And then finally, this no name publication that nobody's ever heard of is going to let you do a thing where you can really go out and report and it's like really fun and you can just kind of do the sort of reporting that you want and you can write in that narrative fashion that you really want. And yeah, they're only going to pay you $200 for it and you're going to spend like two weeks of your life on this, but you'll have a good clip and you'll have something that you're proud of and you'll have fun. And so anything can be that second layer that kind of like gets you to the third layer, which is where you're doing your dream stuff, but also making the money from it. And so, um, so I worked that second layer a lot, you know, during that period when, you know, I, I, yeah, I mean, granted, you know, I was lucky that the Forbes thing worked out well for me so quickly that, you know, I was making six figures from it. And I, I fully understand many, many people have worked for Forbes as a contributor and not made six figures, but it definitely at least during that time was possible. I don't know about now because I, I, they may have changed the pay scale or I, I really don't know what, what's going on with that. But um, even if you're making less than that, you can still make that third layer kind of like help you get to second layer gigs. And you use that extra time to, like I said, either get the clips you want, even if they're not paying, or you do other things where they're going to pay you a lot and you just gamify it so that you're trying to earn as much as you can in as short of time as possible. Um, and there's probably other, th- I'm sure other people can think of like good second layer things, but you know, I'm really happy and I feel really lucky that now I'm basically at the third layer 
where I'm making good money from stuff I love doing. I have published a book that I, I actually really do feel proud of. Is it perfect? Maybe not, but it's my best first effort, you know? And um, I have a lot of really cool offers coming my way for really fun, creative things to do. And I'm just, I just love it. You know, I'm, it feels really good. So this is my theory about, yeah, how you can make it as a freelancer and, you know, move your way up to your own third layer of your cake. I feel like I rarely get to uh, end this show on an upbeat note. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to stop it there. Uh, thank you so much for this interview. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Hey, uh, thanks for listening to the Long Forum Podcast. Uh, I'm Aaron Lammer. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Our editor on this episode was Seth Kelly. Our intern was Noelle Matier. We are brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, who help us make the show. Thanks to them and all the sponsors. We'll be back next week. Support for Long Forum this week came from listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.